0: I'm going to take you through a little bit of, um, of Richard's backstory because it's fascinating. Um, it's always interesting to know how a poet has come to do what they do and in Richard's case, um, it's extremely unconventional. Um, it, Richard is... I had to ask about this career, but Richard has been a, ta- a regional planner. I was about to say town planner, which is what I'm not supposed to say because a regional planner is a far more um, wondrous creature. Um, Richard studied in the US under a guy called Ian McCarg, who, if we've got time, we should talk about because he's fascinating. Um, He's been a VCAT member. He's been the chair of the um, Hamilton Hamilton and Alexandra College Council. Um, He's been chair of the Green Triangle Council for Regional Development, which I think... Were you the inaugural chair of
1: that? I was on the... I think you're going. Is that on? Yeah. I I was on the board, the Ah, inaugural board that we set up, and that was back in, I think, 1982, and then took over as chairman after the first chairman stepped out. Ah, okay. Okay. And uh, did that job for another eight years or thereabouts, something like that. And then the government uh, closed us down, so (laughs) we were starting to get a bit dangerous, I think.
0: (laughs) Revolutionary body. Um, Richard is also, um, much more importantly than any of these things, the husband of Ruth for 57 years. Um, Yes, And Ruth, um, many of you in the room already know, but for those of you who don't already know, is uh, a very, very prominent and accomplished botanical artist um, who works really worth checking out. Um, I think there's uh, not only children of Richard and Ruth in the room, but in fact grandchildren as well. So hello to all of you. Um, Okay, and, and the, the sort of jumping off point from all of that history into Richard's poetry is that um, Richard has a genuine love of this region. He's very interested in the idea of regions, I think it's fair to say, and, and their potential, but also our region in particular. True. Um, can you take us through a little bit of that history, Richard, as to, as to how you've sort of come to love the place?
1: Well, <coughs> me. Uh, I think it's stems from childhood growing up in the southwest, yeah. at Hamilton in particular, uh, in the 1940s and going into the early 50s. Uh, it was an interesting time to be a child in, <laughs> in this world. And uh, Pearl Harbour was uh, just three months after I was born. Right. Um, and Dad became a fitter armour in the Air Force, uh, went into Northern Australia on a number of different stations there, uh, replenishing cannons and uh, on aircraft Uh, my uncle went off to the war as air crew and did the trip across the pacific through to canada as part of the empire flying uh, scheme a flight training scheme and uh, while there they discovered he had an inner ear issue and couldn't become part of flight crew and so they said well you're on this trip now you're going to continue uh, and go through right through to Britain and he spent the war in RAF headquarters at Kodak House in London for five years and uh, so um, that sort of broadened our horizons early on and uh, things happened from there on but I think the the regional issue came from just a desire to It's not that I have anything against cities but I think they're a great place and that the real mixing uh, of ideas and the f- sort of f- ferment of society but good things can also happen in regional areas and uh, there are good people living in the regions and they have insights that aren't always available to those in cities mm. and I as time went on I was involved in a lot of community organizations it became apparent that well, it seemed to us out here that uh, if things uh, weren't being done in Mel- Melbourne, uh, they shouldn't be done in regional areas mm. anyway, or shouldn't happen in regional areas unless they're being done in Melbourne as well. And it was just this preponderance of the direction of policy and the money that followed from it. Uh, we felt going in a, an undue way to the cities, Mm. to the neglect of the regions mm-hmm. and that was basically behind it and I thought, well what I can do is to try and help regional organisations to get going and uh, help regional people to achieve some of those things that uh, might, might help. Sorry Joe. Yeah. <laughs> so Richard at
0: some point um, you've devoted all of that energy and intellect to your formal career in the regions Um, At some point, you must have been turning your thought and your energy to writing poetry and to your art. Is that something that had been going on the whole time simultaneously, or did that kind of emerge over the years?
1: The art part of it was I've always enjoyed sketching, and so whenever we travelled or had some time, I'd always have a a sketchbook and a pen or a pencil and uh, do some sketching. And... um, the poetry came later i think in the sense that uh, i'd always been been interested in reading poetry and i, I started collecting poems of individual poets and anthologies of poems but that really i think started much earlier when we were at school as as kids in primary school at gray street and uh, the state produced these school readers for each year level and They were republished by the Victorian Printing Office in 1987 and as a boxed set from one to eight. And I I, I got a copy of that or a box box of those books and uh, it rekindled a whole lot of memories for us, for both Ruth and myself, of things, bits of literature, English literature, but also a quarter of the content had to be Australian. It was mandated that that was required when they were written. I think back in 1928 and 30 and the last time they were the whole group set were being used I understand in the schools was 19 just before 1950 Uh, but the year five or the five and six books went on through much of the fifties and they weren't specifically written for children but because they're extracts from a literature a wide range of literature and apart from the very early one and two books, perhaps uh, the rest was uh, really taking slabs out of the available literature, and uh, so we were exposed as children growing up in those years to a, a very wide vocabulary. Uh, it wasn't played down, and the the uh, breadth of uh, writing that we were exposed to, I think, was quite broad and that was probably the start of it and uh, as far as I was concerned and then later on someone uh, we had a tennis group that played uh, tennis for 35 years together on a Saturday afternoon would still be there this afternoon if it was on but uh, one of some of us are no longer here so but despite the gale it's despite <laughs> yeah, the gale, <laughs> yes and it, w- at one time I, I um, always at the start of the season the person who was one of our three hosts uh, are all tennis courts on properties uh, would send out a an invitation and that was in uh, it was a i suppose you'd call it doggerel and uh, my reply was equally uh canine but <laughs> <laughs> it it uh it, d- it did start a habit of putting things in that form in writing and Followed on from there. But
0: That sort of takes me to an interesting point about you, that you have this ability as an artist and you have this ability with poetry. When you encounter something around us in in the landscape or whatever it might be, um, how do you decide which way to respond? How do you know whether something is an image or a set
1: of words? The thing I do at the time is to... The first thing I go to is the sketchbook uh, because that's the... Thing that I can't do once I leave the site to, to the same with the same purpose. That uh, I can I can remember things broadly, but it's, I like to do something while I'm there. Uh, and the one instance, um, but then the it's it's the process of walking through the landscape or walking on the beach early in the mornings, or it might be just a passing comment someone makes that uh, sticks and uh, uh, and. When you mix with farmers, they're people who spend a lot of time alone and are often uh, some of our most succinct uh, philosophers, I think. Uh, they manage to you know, come up with some uh, just uh, quite concise summaries of things that just ring bells. And the, the one thing that comes to mind today is that uh, one of the little haikus in here called Covered uh, was a, an expression that uh, one of the, our riding, bike riding group in the morning, an 84-year-old ex-harmer, John Gubbins by name, who uh, arrived one morning and said, now we've got to wear these nose bags <laughs> uh, while COVID was on, you see. And so uh, the little haiku that's called "Covered" uh, came from just that, that expression. And, just an example of how things happen but uh, we're I think we grab and collect bits and pieces where we go might be something on the ground it might be something we see uh, might be an imprint on the beach um, might be a group of people doing something or animals doing something
0: and And, and are these things are they rumbling around in your head for a period of time before they're committed to paper
1: sometimes yes quite often other since I've been trying to write some poetry, though, of course, I tend to hurry home to a, to a <laughs> notebook or, or try and have something with me to write, write an idea on because it's, it's very frustrating when you know you've had a, an interesting experience or you've, you've noticed something and you wake up the next morning and you think, what the heck was it? <laughs> uh, and that can happen very easily. <laughs> particularly at this age.
0: So you're not one of these people who writes on sticky notes on the steering wheel at 100 k's an hour? No, no, I
1: don't, don't do that, but uh, <laughs> I'm not averse to stopping by the side of the road. And <laughs> ah.
0: Much safer mode. <laughs> um, so there must be, I imagine, a lot more verse that you have compiled over recent years than is in Oddfellows. How did you start to narrow it down and how did you have the sense that there was a collection forming?
1: I think it was the, the COVID uh, and the experience of the lockdown over God. the last 18 months or so uh, because as someone once said, or many people have said probably, it's not until we have these constraints placed on us where we can't do things that we really find out what it is we'd like to do. And it seemed very easy for me to say, well, here we are, we no social engagements, we. I can't even have friends in uh, we've stuck here we need to do something with the time and place and uh, so i started doing that and part of it was taking this online uh, writing program with a chap called uh, adam Wyeth, who is an englishman now li- has lived in ireland for some years as a young man and he has an associate position with one of the theaters in dublin Along the way, he's a very accomplished poet himself. He's a, a reader, a close reader, of Seamus, as Seamus Heaney called him, of poetry. Uh, and uh, he sp- writes essays and plays. And several of his plays have been produced not only in uh, Ireland, but on the continent and in Britain as well.
0: So there must have been a point, if I think back to sort of March last year, when... Um, I was coming in here and getting jigsaws from Joe, and I, I was worried she was going to run out of jigsaws, <laughs> that none of us really knew how open-ended that situation was. And so you're building a project in a small way at first by doing the course and you knew that you had some collected poetry behind you. Um, you mu- It must have been hard to know the scale of what it was you were embarking on.
1: Well, I wasn't embarking on a book. Mm, right. I was embarking on a writing program. Yeah, uh, It only became apparent that... Perhaps there might be something there that we could put together just as a record of some time spent, as it were. And um, I... The stuff that had been done before that, some of which I've kept, uh, Mm -hmm. some of which had previously been published in uh, a local anthology that Brian Edwards was, that I acknowledge in the... uh, um, acknowledgments at the beginning of this book. And Brian, I think it's influenced a lot of people in the district. Mm. Certainly Joe the, and I. Other people. Yes. Yeah.
0: You should explain a bit more about Brian, I guess. Yes,
1: well, Brian was an academic uh, in literature at uh, Deakin University in Geelong. Uh, it turns out that Brian and I were at uh, residential college at uni, in residence in Queens, back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And um, he was a, still is a nice, nice fella. He uh, used to play a very good game of cricket and he was a good footballer. It's good uh, fisherman. Too. Good fisherman, very good mm-hmm. fisherman, and an excellent golfer with a raggy bag of sticks. And, but he <laughs> it, it, it does it very well. And uh, he, he uh, also writes, he, he's, he writes poetry, he literary criticism. He analyzes literature in a big way and he has some favourite authors that he he follows and uh, a really interesting man who's contributed a lot to uh, the development of uh, literary pursuits in and around the state, I think, and probably further. So um,
0: at some stage you must have moved to a phase where you were bringing some of your poems into a collection and other ones you're casting aside. How are those de- Are they emotional decisions? Are they ruthless intellectual decisions? Uh,
1: I wouldn't call them emotional decisions. <laughs> uh, I, uh, you do get that to have a sense of uh, ownership of, mm. of your writing. I, I, I agree with that, that element of it, but some things have became quite apparent during the course of that quite intense sort of response. To, to attend sort of modular module, module uh, program that I was doing. Right. They just wouldn't go any further. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, See, <and> that sounds <laughs> ruthless. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there are other things that sometimes there was elements of things I'd done in the past that I took and then developed yeah. some more. And so it was a mix mix of those things, John. Okay. So there are, I think,
0: were there three sections to the book?
1: Oh, there's um, I think five.
0: Ah, oh, okay, but yes. Oh, there are then two, yeah.
1: The, it's really just, it was just for me a way of uh, not necessarily trying to group similar things but uh, break them up a li- little bit, make it a little bit more of a, an interesting read yeah. um, and some of the illustrations, I think, helped to, helped to do that without being... Uh, direct subjects of poems particularly
0: yeah I I remember now the reason I was thinking of three was because as I moved through the book I I had a sense of three phases that you were talking a lot early on about birds and in particular wading birds and shorebirds then you sort of moved into talking about landforms like the island and, and other places around the town and then towards the back of the book we're dealing more with people I was amazed early on that there was barely a mention of a human being. It was very much poetry about nature mm. and then it evolved towards people as it went along. Mm. Was that sort of a, a conscious arc or was that just the way things fell?
1: It was probably uh, more a case of I didn't feel comfortable writing about people. Okay. Yep. <laughs> um, and I, I'm not sure if I am now, really, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the it... it I've always had a, a great love of birds and bird watching yeah. and coming here to live here 17 years ago where and we overlooked the Moyne and it was uh, it's a section of the Moyne that's tidal and when the tide goes out the waiting birds come in and uh, then the tide comes back in again and so it's constantly changing and that became an object of interest and I started making notes about those things. A lot of birdos count birds and, or make lists of how many birds they see, but I found more interest in uh, watching their behaviour and then taking notes from, from that sort of thing or thinking about it.
0: Well, that explains a bit to me now because the thing that struck me was that you weren't writing about, you know, the great seabirds or the migratory birds or um, the raptors or any... It was these kind of unsung birds mm-hmm. that... Um, don't really have a voice often in literature. But there there you go, they're out the front of your house and and that's your interest. Yes. Um, We should dig into a few of the poems specifically, I think. Um, Richard and I had a coffee and a chat about which ones to select for the purposes of of talking today. Um, And it's been a very, very difficult um, selection, I can assure you. So I've tried to um, establish a little cross-section across the collection here. I I hope I've done Richard justice in asking for these ones, but we'll find out. Um, Okay, The Sentinel. Um, firstly, can you tell us what is the sentinel about, just before you read it to us as well?
1: Well, uh, there's usually a story behind all, all the palms. Uh, it mightn't be a long story, but there's, there's some German idea or an event that's that triggered it. And uh, the sentinel is about the night heron. Uh, it's a wonderful bird. It's a bird that a lot of people don't know lot about or see much uh, but come to Port Ferry and they're there in front of you take a walk along the wharf and they're still there in front of you and uh, you look up in the tree and they're roosting in the tree so anywhere around the river you'll see night herons most of the year but uh, particularly uh, when the fishing season's on and uh, the boats are coming in with the catch and it's an easy feed Mm. so would you like me to read them Yes, now? please. <laughs> Forget my shaking of the mic. It's just to, to get the visual effect of a wind. Yeah, no, in no, the wind. No, <laughs> Do you want me to hold Michael's book? No, I think, yeah, I think. Shuttered against the moonlight of the ebbing tide, the night heron transits the estuary with the rhythm of a flying fox, alighting on a favoured rock where it watches and waits, feathered basilisk. Replenished at night's end, the bird retraces its path in the pre-dawn gloom, its progress marked by an eerie quark, until rising above the village and the wharf, it settles in the willow myrtle's roost. There is no truce for the bluefin tuna. Fishermen have returned from the continental shelf, winched their boats from the water, and clean the catch, steadfast night heron watches from a bollard. Hunched and alert, its black crowned head nestled in rufous wings, the capuchin sentinel of the moine waits. When it strikes, in a moment it is up and away, a crimson veil streaming from the choicest offcut held in its gleaming beak.
0: Now, there's so much I'm interested in in here, but in particular, I had to look up basilisk.
1: It's, it's a good t- word, is Terrible
0: it? confession, but yes.
1: Now, I had to look it up too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing is, it changes the whole nature of the poem because they're quite a malevolent
1: thing. They are. And, yeah. uh, and I've noticed just recently as a result of uh, some uh, watching we've been doing uh, that uh, Harry Potter has uh, made it a real thing for us. And uh, so basilisks now have a currency that uh, is much more current than perhaps it was uh, a few years ago. You were ahead of the curve. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: So a reptile that uh, I think mythologically can kill or paralyze with its stare?
1: Certainly malevolent.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I'm thinking about night herons in a whole different way. Um, But also the way you, you talk in the poem about the routine of the bird figuring out that the fishermen are coming in and cleaning their catch and that there'll be an easy offcut from that, which reminded me of the very same thing that the stingray is doing under the wharf. Mm. that they mm. seem to become um, sort of... Uh,
1: Symbiotic a relationship. Yeah yeah. Yeah, 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 beautiful.
0: And it, it's very much, I mean, that's um, as a location very much of the wharves, isn't it? Mm. Because it is. you mentioned them on the, on the bollards and that's how I would see a night heron is, yes. is on that yeah. old woodwork. Yeah. yeah. Um, should we move to um, Island Easter Saturday? This one's a bit longer, um, and, and it's, I think this really captures, particularly this afternoon, this kind of atmosphere. Yes? He. Who, would, who would leave a phone on? <laughs> Thank you,
1: Bob. Unlike uh, last Easter Saturday, the mm. most recent <laughs> one, it's obviously <laughs> urgent.
0: It's Richard's phone.
1: <laughs> Easter Saturday this year was a wonderful day. It was a day to go swimming. And, but uh, Easter, the Easter last year, during the lockdown, was a very wild day. So that's really where this came from. The Island Easter Saturday. Shafts of sunlight catch wave crests as the aquamarine swells become spray and vapour against the 30,000-year-old basalt reefs and coastline. Wind and waves unite in a demonic chorus and we are mute. Chestnut teal shelter behind the causeway and broken waves pour through the passage. We struggle to stay upright as the chop of the incoming tide slops over the training wall. There is a stench of rotting kelp carried on the wind. Everything is fixed and upright, is moving. Mobile creatures, undercover coupling. 20,000 short-tailed shearwaters left their burrows for the East Asian flyway and the North Pacific. And here, on the island, the scavenger gulls, ibis and ragged-winged ravens clean up the immature mutton birds killed by predatory cats, rats and foxes. Black wallabies cluster in the few Norfolk Island pines and shrubs, grazing the green pick, their dark chocolate coats as dense as fur seals. An echidna burrows into the sandbank with his powerful claws. Few would tangle with his coat of sharp yellow spikes. At the island's southernmost point, The now-automatic lighthouse and navigation beacons warn sailors of reefs and mark entry to the river and the town. This is also the site of the first attempt to create a bay whaling venture. Much has been removed, the infrastructure and vats for scrap, the building stones for use elsewhere, and whale songs echo the carnage of sealers and whalers drowned and enterprises that failed. Desolate now, the sight of the lighthouse keeper's cottage and outbuildings reminds us of supplies by boat so close to the mainland. Remnants of self-reliance, garlic, bitter wild rocket, daffodils and jonquils mark the garden. Harbingers is man in many cultures of good fortune and in some of death.
0: Thank you. The... Um I loved towards the end of that poem the, the familiarity that you have with that spot because the, we've all been out there but the, the, the actual blocks weighing tonnes and tonnes of that lighthouse keeper's cottage are mm. all gone and mm. the whole thing's eradicated mm. and yet the garden persists. Yes. It, yes. It's a marvellous thing, isn't it? It is not it You go it out is. there and there's garlic stalks and, yes. and all these different bulbs. Yes. What about what's happening earlier in the poem with the perspective? I... You say we struggle to stay upright, is that walkers in the wind
1: yes right yeah. okay it's it was really wild, and uh we were we did walk that day right. and uh it uh yes it, you knew you were trying to stay upright
0: yeah, and then a little bit further on, everything fixed and upright is moving, mobile creatures under cover coupling
1: what's going on there well, there's a lot of burrowing animals out there mm. and uh not just the mutton birds, there's, there's others as well. And uh, uh, it's a bit like a brownout in a city. The birth rate increases in those times. <laughs> Nine months later. Yeah. So
0: just no television. Thought.
1: Just a thought. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, and then you, you reveal a little bit of your environmental consciousness about the place with the reference to cats, rats, and foxes, mm. which is a constant issue out there. Yes. It? Lovely. Um, all right, I'm going to move you on to Odd Fellows itself. I think in, in music verbiage we would call this the title track.
1: The title track, yes. <laughs> A cover, I call it. Uh, when someone else plays it, is that the, the Yes, idea? yeah, yeah. I should be getting someone else to play this one. <laughs> um, yes, I, I don't have a lot of inanimate objects that are friends. But the bridge is one of them, because when I wake up in the morning, it's the first thing I see. Uh, it's the bridge over the mine and uh, I look up from the bed, and if the blinds open far enough, I can I can see the bridge, and so it uh, takes an important part in in our life, my life, and uh, the only other, well, the other in our inanimate objects I think of that uh, are friends uh, probably books mm. fellows. In the silence of the fog-enfolded estuary the sun shines revealing bold vertical and horizontal strokes framed by the white painted rails of a woodblock print It prompts a sketch, a painting now a lino cut. Clusters of hardwood tree trunks contained between massive beams, pierced by rusted iron bolts, and a deck of planks surfaced with, surfaced with bitumen, become a bridge. My joints are rusty but holding. A few months of the year pass when a work crew is not out or under the bridge, slowing the ravages of rot. The repairs will never be finished. Mine are just beginning and will last while Medicare and I persist. <laughs> the deck surface is cracked by stress and the movement of heavy vehicles causes the timbers to rattle. It is a mellower rumble than the clanging aluminium notes of trailers. The skin is creased and I snore and groan. Beneath the bridge, the waters of the ebb tide flow downstream from the productive shallows of the lock to the low productivity of the ocean, we journey towards decrepitude. At dusk, its form becomes a shattered silhouette against the sunset estuary, reflecting, p- fleet, pl- reflecting fleet pulses of gold, red, purple and mauve. It is a path to activity and community, or a way to a place of refuge and reflection. At the end, a muffled rumble comes from the darkness as my friend of the dawn and evening says good night. If it is one of the last things I see, I shall be content to be by our hearth. I love that last line. It's all pretty jocular till
0: then, <laughs> but that's quite a statement. Um, it, it's interesting, isn't it, when, when they do works on the bridge? you suddenly realise that the township is in fact very isolated without mm. it and mm. you have to drive all the way around the backside yes. to get out of town. as we had to while yeah. the big works were Yeah, and I remember feeling outraged. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to take me eight minutes. Yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> and also people um, getting their bike
1: wheels stuck in it. Yeah, well, that was a real hazard, yeah. yes. A- that and now still is on the pedestrian path. I mean, a lot of people from the camping ground, ride bikes over the timber sections on, the, on that pedestrian track on the side, on right. the yeah. uh, north side, and uh, that's quite hazardous. Right, yeah. But when
0: you say, you know, this is your inanimate friend, I, I think isn't this one of the really serious jobs of poetry, that you've taken a thing that's so ubiquitous that all of us deal with every day, mm. and I barely give it a thought, mm. and then to see that you have a whole different sense of the beauty of this thing and mm. it's, it's kind of cycles of decay and maintenance. Yeah.
1: And, and visually, it, it's, it changes so much with the weather. And, uh, you know, fog morning and it, it emerges out of the fog uh, at late mm. at night, early in the morning. It, it changes form. And uh, that's interesting too. And it's kind of
0: workmanlike, isn't it? It's not like something passing over the seine. It's not grand.
1: No. It, no it's pretty no. humble. <laughs> it is, yes. But good. Yeah, but good.
0: But good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful poem. Um, all right. Next up, I think, in the selections, we had "Winter of Our Discontent."
1: Yes, um, this comes from a couple of things. Mm. It's it's about Rutledge's. Everything all right? Right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're thinking of disco Thanks. tent? That's a rave. <laughs>
1: I'll talk to you afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) It's about Rattledge's Cutting, which is just down below Tower Hill. Um, And uh, at the time when I was writing it, it was a time of community concern about uncontrolled immigration into Australia. And so those two elements uh, came into play on this. Winter of Our Discontent. In July, seven rafts arrived in the bay, each with a 1,000 or more individuals on the move, working cooperatively, exploiting the resources of this economic zone, but without visas or work permits. They had come from across the Tasman, specialist inshore fly fishers fishes flying underwater in pursuit of prey seasonally unavailable in their own waters just as our specialist fishers had gone to the North Pacific. Shapeshifters. On dull days, the rafts are black, ominous. Then the sun shines, transforming them to virtuous white, striving only to survive and breed the next generation. We call them fluttering shearwaters. Late in March, others come to this storm-wracked coast. Small bands, exhausted in indistinct garb, First seen on the periphery, then in the far lookers, two fluffy snowballs scurrying between wavelets of sand and desiccated kelp. Lack of winter food in the high country of the Southland has driven them to our shore. Their own own race denied them new habitat. No jobs are lost. Our sea changers and shore dwellers have gone north on the flyway to the shrinking resource of Vietnam, Korea and China. These working visitors have thrived on the insects, mollusks, worms and larvae of the cutting. Five months on, replenished and fit, they flaunt the flashing chestnut and black bands of their breeding plumes. We call them double-banded plovers. Inoffensive fellow creatures They ask only for the chance to earn a living for a short time until they return home. For us, it is beauty and diversity they lend to our cosseted lives.
0: Now, Richard, is that a political poem?
1: You could say it has elements of (laughs) politics in it, Jock. Yes. yes, yes. I just wasn't sure how how sort of... I felt stronger about it a little while ago, but, yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Um, the other thing that it called to mind for me was that I, I think, particularly in busy times in Port Ferry, the place sometimes seems like a commodity. Like we've we've developed a product that we're selling to visitors and that it's all about the value of the houses or the quality of the coffee or whatever it might be. And and the poems like that that you're writing, you're reminding us that it's a natural world mm. and that there's there's these... Migratory cycles going on and biological cycles going on that are completely separate to the the commercial side of the town Is that something that you dwell on a bit when you when you write poems?
1: Yes, I think so uh, and I mean if I was in marketing, I think I'd probably have be having to start to think about uh, How we keep it secret <laughs>
0: <laughs> Go the other way yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, All right, so the last of these, I'm really glad that we've saved this one for the last of the, the poems we've selected because I think it's really special. Um, and to me, this is Richard moving very firmly towards writing about people and, and in a very, very affecting way. Um, I'd better let you introduce it beyond that, Richard, I think. As soon as I
1: manage to find the <laughs> page... Uh, what have I got? 63. I do have it marked, but... Uh, I'm trying to protect the mic as well. shakes get so bad even though I wrote it myself sometimes hard to read it (laughs) yes I don't think I need to say anything by way of introduction good it's called an ending she released him from her embrace as the boy and his father drove off to the city he could see his mum getting smaller waving in the mirror The resident master showed them to the dormitory he would share with five other boys his own age, all new to the school. His clothes unpacked, they had a cup of tea, scones, jam and cream with the other families. After a walk through the grounds and a talk at the front gate, it was time to say goodbye. For the first time, his father held out his right hand and they shook, trying to smile but with tears welling in their eyes before they had hugged or kissed, but here they were on show. I shall get a page turn the next one. That's a good idea. (laughs) I'm sure it's a service I could (laughs)
0: offer. There
1: we go. Can you remember where we were up to? (laughs) The father returned to the car and his son walked around the Oval before going in, each having a good ball at their loss and the change that had taken place. His care had passed to the school and staff. The parents were welcome to visit their son at home in his new setting, but by arrangement. Daily chats over meals were replaced by a much-anticipated exchange of letters once a week and visits home in the school holidays. Their lives apart were another world, not all of which was shared. Once the moment had passed, some events didn't bear retelling.
0: Now, the boy's you. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, down through your enormous family life and, and decades and decades, of um, happy relationships. That moment obviously still burns pretty brightly for you. Hmm.
1: Well, it's... One of the things I've noticed about about writing of any sort, but particularly with poetry, it's only when you sit down and start writing that uh, a whole lot of other things come back into your mind. Uh, I first noticed it when the boys would come home and talk about uh, how many... You know, generations or what? A little bit about the family history. They had a, an exercise to do at school and had to report back. And we'd start telling them things about our respective families, and uh, and they had to pull us up because once you start, you, you keep remembering other things. <laughs> and they, yeah, we were giving too much information. They wanted a few dates, a couple of generations, and that's the answer to that question. But uh, and so that's continued as I. Sit and one of the things I've, I learned to do during this thing, which you know very well, uh, with the during COVID and the writing uh, exercises, is you have to write every day, you need to just start off quite fast and just write for a quarter of an hour, fill a page or two with just whatever comes into your mind. And it's amazing what comes from those sorts of episodes. And uh, this was uh, another way in which some of that stuff comes to mind.
0: So had that incident, um, you know, of parting with your father, had that been a stone in your shoe all of these years and you finally um, wrote it out? Or have you written about it before and talked about it before?
1: No, I haven't. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, it wasn't a stone in my shoe. I got over it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the it's next poignant, though. probably the next day, <laughs> uh, because I I enjoyed school Did and yeah. yeah and so that was fine. But uh, and then I I worked in the same office as my father for 33 years, right. uh, for in part at least. Yeah. Uh, so I wasn't having any luck or, or any lack of uh, father uh, figures in my life. Ah. <laughs> uh, well the poem reads sense. very differently.
0: The poem, it feels like a real severance.
1: Well, it was the time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: all right, well, that brings us to the end of the journey through Odd Fellows, which is of course for sale just over there behind us all. Um, and I urge you all to buy multiple copies. Um, and I'm just I'm thinking about time, Joe. Would you like us to take some questions now, or do we need to give everybody a bit of time um, for a break between? Or what would you like? Yeah? Okay, sure. Would anyone like to ask Richard a question about the poems? Or anything? Well, we can read another one. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a compulsory activity, by the way.
1: Really much. <laughs> yes? When did you start writing poems? In a constant... Oh, well, when I say constant, in a regular way, probably about... Uh, when did Brian... Well, we came here 17 years ago and we fairly early on got involved with uh, Brian Edwards' uh, writing group that he, that he had and people would bring along examples of their work to monthly meetings and, and read them. That was about 2008, I reckon, wasn't it? About then, about 2008. And from then on I was writing things reasonably regularly. I think it's it's what I've also found in the last few years, in particular, is that things only improve by going back into them and editing in them, cutting down, writing again, again and again and again, and that's I think the, the change that takes place. <clears throat> uh, just John. A nice piece of
0: advice.
1: Did I go back and teach my pointer class ten or fifteen more times? <laughs> <laughs> At least, John. You should you should keep doing it. It's uh, it was a great great fun. Kate, did you have a question? Uh yeah, Richard, for memory you have a number of columns that are in a heartbeat form? Yes. Mm. Yes. yes. Mm. I had an interest in haiku uh, from just reading other other poems and uh, hearing people talk about poetry and the haiku form for those of you who are not familiar with I'm sure most of you are but it's 17 syllables in the traditional form in three lines five seven and five and uh, it 's a Japanese form, obviously, and um, I quite enjoy it i you know i at one stage i made a resolution to write a haiko a day and i haven 't done that but i've i 've written a few and there uh, 's there 's one here I particularly like, which is the one on called burn Sienna and uh, it uh, <laughs> there is. Oh. Thanks, John. And it's um, self explanatory, I think. Kimberley shelters, dream time, song lines, ancient art, old fella yarns, new light. And the great thing about haikus, I think, is. They're often, well, in the traditional form, they're nature-related. Um, they often have a seasonal influence, but certainly a quite a specific uh, reference to nature in one form or other. And um, they're, I think they're capable of saying a lot with a few, few words.
0: We might need to wrap up there, I think. But thank you all for listening. And, Richard, thank you so much for your thoughts about the book. Um, it's fascinating. And, and, yeah, I really recommend this very, very highly. It's a wonderful account of our town and our region. And Oh, sorry. Yeah. I to ask yes. about the illustrations. Ah, good question. Yes, <laughs> yeah. You're quite right.
1: Thanks. Thanks for it. <laughs> Maureen happens to run the sketching group with the Year 3 <laughs> <day>. <laughs> And we're both, both members of that group, obviously. Uh, and she does a great job in encouraging everyone to to draw more and sketch more. And it, it, I would join her in that. It's, it's a great pastime. But um, I just find it, it's a way of remembering where we go. When we've travelled, as I said earlier, I, I take a sketchbook and a pen, pencil. i started with a pencil, but it got very messy, and so now it's a pen which doesn't rub and leave a mess, and you've got to reasonably… And I find, particularly now, but I draw many lines, but something seems to still emerge. It's not just one line that's correct you can't get it correct you keep on doing it until you get it <laughs> and uh, things things come out of that process and uh, that's uh, that's a, as big a joy as writing for me there are there are s- s- several of them are liner cuts Moraine, yes and uh, I came to that uh, w- we did one at school I think I remember at once in primary school but um, yes I've, started doing some printmaking.
0: Including the bridge, which really lends itself to a lino cut, doesn't it?
1: Well, that was a sketch I did on a a Sunday afternoon, uh, just going up to the other side of the bridge and sitting where just off the path from the Botanic Gardens there and just took a section of the bridge and did a pencil sketch, which is still in my sketchbook, and that became the base for a a lino cut some years later. So could I just say... uh, Thank you to Joe for making this space available and for inviting me to, to come here and do this with Jock. And also thanks, Jock, for treating me so kindly and uh, <laughs> looking after me. And, uh, and t- above all, thank you all for coming. It's uh, great to see so, so many people turn up. And it, when I first got up here into these big chairs and this fairy land, and <laughs> I'd, I'd often sat where you are looking up at this and. Uh, thought what a wonderful, you know, what do they called? It's, it's, it's a stadium. The, ambi- the ambience is excellence. That's <laughs> quite right. Uh, and uh, do you, do you, could you would like to take up poetry?
0: Who preempts a poet? But when I
1: first came up here and... And looked out, it started to look more and more like Rod Laver Arena, I think. <laughs> so, thank you all for coming, and uh, thank you, Joe.